When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast channel here on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we're talking to Dr. Trevor Griffey about the UC strike out in California. Welcome to the show, Trevor. Thanks for having me. I am so glad that you're here and we get to talk about the strike. Before we dive into that, will you please tell us about yourself? Uh, Sure. So I am a lecturer in labor studies at UCLA. I am also a lecturer in uh, U.S. history at the University of California, Irvine. Uh, I got my Ph.D. in U.S. history from the University of Washington in 2011, and I'm currently serving as the uh, Vice President for Legislation for the University Council American Federation of Teachers, which is the labor union that represents non-Senate faculty and librarians in the University of California system. I'm always curious about people's own journey through higher ed. Um, what drew you to this field of study? And when you first set out, did you know what you wanted to do? No. Uh, So no, I did not know what I was doing. And I did not totally know what I wanted to do. Excuse me. Um, I was a freelance journal journalist and activist in Seattle, uh, after graduating college. And um, I was frustrated by the limitations of nonprofit organizations and the Democratic Party. And uh, kind of went to grad school trying to understand um, the history of social welfare in the United States and social movements. I, I felt very much as if the early 2000s when I entered graduate school were a moment where there were very limited possibilities for significant improvements in the economy in the United States for those at the bottom. And I felt that there were maybe moments in the past where there were greater opportunities for change. And I wanted to understand those opportunities. So I thought I would be doing maybe a history of the war on poverty, um, in the 1960s and early 1970s, uh, or maybe something like the history of homelessness. Um, but when I arrived in graduate school, I really learned that there was no way to study the topics I was interested in without studying the history of racism and uh, that there was really no way to understand the history of social movements uh, in the United States that addressed equity without also looking at the history of both um, the labor movement and movements for racial justice. And so um, my focus ended up shifting as a graduate student, and I helped create something called the Seattle Civil Rights and Labor History Project, which was a, a website in which we Uh, published uh, undergraduate student 
essays about the history of social movements for racial and economic justice in the Seattle area and in the Pacific Northwest, as well as tried to explain for a popular audience uh, the history of racism in the Pacific Northwest, something uh, that uh, was not popularly understood at the time. This is now amazingly about 15 to 20 years ago that I was doing this work. And so um, that really drew from my background in having been a freelance writer. And so I both, I went back to people that I knew from journalism and it turned out while I had been asking them questions as a journalist about their contemporary work, that many of them had been involved in activism for decades. They had been part of social movements and, um, and reaching out to them, I was able to do a series of oral history interviews that were foundational for creating that web project. Um, so that's, that's really how I, and, and once I did that, I learned about the fields of public history, uh, public humanities, uh, digital history and digital humanities. And I went from feeling like I was sort of this outcast for being interested in public facing work more than being interested in academic facing work to actually thinking maybe there was a place for me in higher education. And that's why I completed my degree. And that's sort of how, how I hoped to seek a tenure track job when I graduated. Do you want to talk a little bit about that path? You're, you're a lecturer that is a non tenure track path. That's right. Um, so as your listeners probably know, um, the majority of college teaching jobs in the United States um, are temporary, and that is to say, they're not on. They're they're fixed for a certain term. Sometimes for just one semester or a quarter. Sometimes for a school year. Sometimes for a couple years. Um, and then of those temporary jobs, the majority of those are actually low wage jobs uh, where it is very difficult to earn a living. Um, I extended my time in graduate school because I was set to graduate right around the time that the Great Recession happened, 2009, 2010. Um, and there was no reason to graduate because I would there were no jobs and I would lose the health benefits that my union provided to me as a graduate student worker. And so I delayed my dissertation. I got involved in uh, writing journalism. I co-edited an academic book. Um, but I had to leave sometime. So I graduated in 2011 to a pretty bad job market. And through my community connections was able to basically people created jobs for me. I was very fortunate, but it's that kind of informal economy where academics might have access to temporary funds to fill a gap in their curriculum. And so I taught for two years at the Evergreen State College uh, in Olympia, Washington, and then I taught for two more years at the University of Washington's Bothell campus. Um, after kind of being on the job market, the job market improved a little bit. I applied for those jobs. I had campus visits, uh, but I did not get offered a tenure track job. And by that point, I felt that I had focused so much of my time on um, my professional life that I felt very unbalanced. I did not feel personally very grounded. So I was excited by the opportunity to, um, when I started dating an old friend and our relationship moved quickly, um, we decided we wanted to live in the same place. We were both in our late 30s, 
and she had a she had a tenure track job at the University of California Irvine, and I only had a temporary job in the Seattle area, and um, and so I came down to I left the Seattle area and came to Southern California uh, to be with her. And actually, on the day of my going away party, I got a call from Evergreen offering me a tenure track job, but because they didn't provide spousal hires and my wife had a better job at Irvine. I turned down that tenure track opportunity. And for those who don't know, uh, there's a custom, there's nothing fixed in higher education about this, but there's a custom that basically says after three years, after somebody has graduated from their PhD program, uh, they're basically blacklisted. Um, it's informal, so it's not universally enforced and there are people who have different opinions on it. But the custom is so deep that it becomes something where even if you have three to five years of teaching experience, even if you, uh, if you, in my case, my dissertation had won an award, uh, even though I had published a book and a public history project as a graduate student, uh, basically I timed out of being considered in a serious way for any tenure track jobs. Um, and so I could either leave higher education entirely or I could remain a second-class citizen in uh, various temp jobs in the Southern California area. Um, what I instead did is I got involved with the labor movement. Um, the experience of seeing, of doing low-wage temp jobs for general education classes in teaching colleges and community colleges in Southern California shocked me. Um, it shocked me because I realized that I had had a heretofore pretty privileged position in higher education and research universities. And, um, I became very concerned about inequalities in our higher education system. And I felt that labor unions offered our best chance to address those problems in a systematic way and provide quality education for uh, public school students in particular, um, and that, that our profession needed to radically change. And so for the last few years, while teaching U.S. history and teaching labor studies, a significant amount of my time has been spent on uh, trying to organize faculty to develop the confidence and the willingness to take risks necessary to improve their schools. And so um, that's how I ended up becoming uh, a leader in, in my own union uh, in the University of California. And the union that you're in is specifically for non-tenure faculty and librarians working at the University of California. So your partner has a different union than you do? Uh, she actually is not represented by a union, interestingly enough. So um, in... So there are public schools and private schools um, in California, uh, which by virtue of its being a large state that has historically made significant investments in public higher education going back over a century, uh, it has, if not the largest, one of the largest public higher education systems in the world. It has a three-tier system of uh, research universities. There are 10 research universities associated with the University of California. There are 23 teaching colleges associated with the California State University system, and there are um, roughly 115 community colleges. Uh, and altogether, there are uh, 
well over 2 million undergraduate students, you know, sometimes depends on the year, enrolled in this system every year. And because of state labor law, all of the faculty in this system uh, have a right to form a labor union. They've had that right since the 1970s. Um, but, and there have been efforts to form unions even before that, before the state labor law granted that right. But unique among the faculty in this system, the tenure track faculty at the University of California system, which is the wealthiest and most prestigious of those schools, um, they have not chosen to form a labor union. And therefore, not all of the faculty are represented by labor unions in the UC, just a significant segment of the what are called non-Senate faculty. So we are not represented in the academic Senate, and we are lecturers uh, on fixed-term contracts. Um, but the tenure-track faculty are, at the UCs are not represented by unions. Um, but all the tenure-track faculty in pretty much all of the community colleges, as well as all the CSUs, the teaching colleges, they're all represented by unions, as are their, their non-Senate faculty. So the UC is a little distinct in that regard. And the strike that's going on right now is throughout the UC system, but the Cal State system is not on strike? That's correct. So um, there are when unions form, they represent different bargaining units. And um, what is happening right now is that graduate students in four different bargaining units uh, represented by three different union locals spread across all 10 of the UC campuses went on strike together. So that is uh, postdocs, academic researchers, graduate student researchers, and academic student employees. So the vast majority of those workers are um, either graduate student researchers, often in labs, and teaching assistants and graders uh, who are also graduate students. And then there's a handful of undergraduates who are also in that category. Um, and so all of those workers are represented by different United Auto Workers locals, uh, which goes by the name UAW. And they have been on strike together since mid-November for living wages pushing back against the apprentice wage system in higher education. And for listeners, we're taping this in December, um, and the strike is not yet settled. That's right. What is it like on campus right now? Well, right now we're, we're talking um, in, in what is called examinations week. Uh, so whether you're on a semester system as UC Berkeley and UC Merced are, or you're on a quarter system, the classes are over um, for the rest of the month. Um, but people are coming to campus to take final exams um, and possibly to do work in the libraries. And then you have just the regular functioning of the university. Um, but every day for the past three and a half weeks, almost four weeks, there have been large pickets and rallies at every campus in the system. In addition, starting this week, uh, there have been various forms of direct action taking place, uh, largely off campus, but sometimes on campus. Um, 
occupying streets, uh, occupying the office of the president of the University of California system in Oakland and in Sacramento. Um, there have been marches. So every campus has a chancellor and then the chancellors are overseen in a kind of loosely federated way by the president. And so there are like 10 different chancellors and there have been marches on chancellor's homes. There have been, uh, uh, pickets and marches to the homes of the board of regents for the university of California system. Uh, so all of this has been taking place in the last week. Um, so, and to the degree that things are open, uh, campus feels pretty quiet. Very few students are coming to campus. Um, even faculty who are continuing to teach classes are using remote technology like Zoom. And so uh, it feels a bit like a ghost town with, uh, with protests happening is a little bit the, the vibe on campus. Are the faculty who are working remotely right now, is that in part because they don't want to cross the picket line? Well, so this is the interesting thing about strikes at universities, which is um, if workers go on strike, what does it mean for teachers to not cross a picket line? It turns out that teachers have a wide variety of responses. I think the most clear-cut expression of saying don't cross a picket line is saying everybody who's working should stop working. And, um, and therefore, if you teach off campus, if you even teach on a picket line itself, uh, you're still doing work. And therefore, you can be said to symbolically be... Um, crossing a picket line. Um, where this often is difficult for teachers is many teachers, regardless of whether they are um, low-wage temps or they are elite research university faculty making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, many teachers are very emotionally invested in the work of teaching. And they imagine that work to not just be a job, but a vocation. And therefore, um, it is very difficult for some teachers to stop working. And they may even tell themselves or others that, by, that they would be harming their students if they did not cross a picket line. And so when the United Auto Workers went on strike and said, we as graduate students are not going to work in labs, we're not going to do research, we're not going to teach uh, discussion sections. We're not going to teach our classes and we're not going to do any grading. They not only disrupted an enormous part of the university of California's operations, uh, which it, are very dependent on graduate student labor, uh, just across the system in all sorts of ways, but they also immediately put all faculty who were not graduate students in the position of, of having to ask themselves, am I crossing a picket line if I continue to do my work? And um, I would say the vast majority have crossed the picket line and they've continued to teach their classes. Uh, but the, there are two kind of caveats to understanding this and we can go into greater detail. Um, the first is that non-Senate faculty 
like the like me um have a collective bargaining agreement that has a no strikes clause that has some fairly bad provisions so a no strikes clause for most unions just says during for the duration of this contract in exchange for the rights that i've bargained in this contract i am not going to participate in a strike that is usually the basis for most labor contracts in the US. So that clause then is very limiting for everyone who has that in their contract. Right. Well, so in addition to it saying that um, we can't strike for the duration of the contract, there's special language about what are called sympathy strikes. So a, a Uh, Most strikes are about the conditions in your own bargaining unit. Um, So it would be over what's happening to people that we represent. But a sympathy strike is where you go on strike in solidarity with other workers. Uh, in, In many cases in the United States, such strikes are illegal as a way of limiting the power of labor unions to to shape Uh, the economy. And um, so in our case, we have some particularly bad provisions in our no strikes clause that says that um, our members can be disciplined or even fired if they refuse to cross a picket line, which is to say if they stopped canceling, if they cancel their classes, or if they refuse to do grading or do the other work that is part of their job, um, then they can be disciplined or possibly fired. And we won't have a legal basis to get them rehired. And that is that has been chilling because our members teach about one-third of all undergraduate credit hours in the University of California system. Uh, disproportionately, they teach a lot of general education classes And therefore, uh, that no strikes clause has meant that those who have refused to cross the picket line have have tended to do so quietly. Uh, They have not alerted their union to it, and they they are trying to not bring attention to themselves so they don't get fired. But because our members are on short-term contracts and may not be reappointed at the end of a year for any number of reasons... Uh, they tend to be especially cautious about doing something that could cause them to be retaliated against, especially when the law says that retaliation would be legal. And so that has prevented a large number of teachers from um, engaging in the kind of sympathy strikes that would be really needed to help boost the power of graduate students to bargain for a living wage. Um, Tenure-track faculty have much more freedom. They do, as far as we understand, have the academic freedom based in state labor law to refuse to cross a picket line, which is to say to refuse to, uh, to continue to do their work, to refuse to um, pick up the work of striking graduate students and, um, and, and, very, and postdocs. Um, however... Uh, if they do do that strike, I think it's very possible that the UC can withhold their wages and maybe even their benefits. 
the UC does not, to our knowledge, have a very good mechanism for tracking when teachers are striking and when they are not. Um, and so the uh, faculty groups, especially those associated with tenure track faculty, have been promoting um, solidarity striking. So there are hundreds, uh, if not as many as a thousand faculty who plan to withhold grades so long as the strike continues as an act of solidarity. And by doing that, they are potentially uh, risking losing one or more month of income. Um, and so, so that is happening. And when we think about the consequences of that on people and their families, there's also considerations like what happens with health insurance if your employer says, well, you didn't work for that month. Does your insurance continue? Um, can your family survive without that month of salary? Um, will your landlord understand if you don't make a payment for a month? Um there's, a, there's quite a lot on social media about cries for solidarity and for a strong show of support. But when the employer has so much power, there's very real calculations even highly sympathetic um, faculty and staff have to make. That's right. That's right. And as I said, there's a lot of uncertainty about whether um, the University of California can even follow through on its threats. So it can threaten to withhold benefits for every day you're on strike or salary for every day you're on strike. But how would it cal calculate which days you're on strike? Uh, how would it calculate um, uh, it, how, how would it be able to engineer its payroll system such that it could um, enact these kinds of punishments? Um, our understanding is it may not be able to do so. Um, but at the same time, the threat is very potent. And it means that those who are um, refusing to submit grades um, are engaged in a fairly courageous act of sacrifice uh, on behalf of gradu striking graduate students and postdocs. I should also add that the striking grad students and postdocs are taking a significant risk. Uh, to, they uh, also um, are going to have their pay withheld. They also are likely to have their benefits withheld. Um, and while the university may struggle to figure out exactly who is on strike, um, it becomes much more evident at the end of the school year, or excuse me, at the end of each academic term. And we're now uh, at the end of fall quarter and fall semester. So they can at least use grade submission as a proxy for beginning to engage in some harsh disciplinary tactics. And this is a historic strike. This is thousands uh, who are on strike. And so the press has taken notice. So some students are highly visible because they have been photographed, they have been interviewed on air. Um, and so their contribution is easier for the powers that be to track. That's right. But um, uh, still, I think it, it really raises questions about the surveillance capacity of the university, as well as some of the risk of potential blowback. I will say that it, from what I know, um, many tenure track faculty 
are engaged in pretty significant debates within their departments about whether it is ethical for them to continue to teach their classes, about whether it is ethical for them to um, give grades for classes where TAs or graders are on strike, and whether it is ethical for them to potentially supervise strike breakers. Um, Just this week, the University of California, Berkeley, has announced that it it has provided rules to departments to solicit volunteer labor from tenure-track faculty, to reassign staff, and to potentially hire non-Senate faculty on an hourly basis to uh, not just cross the picket line, but to what, what we in the labor movement call scab. That is to say, to do the work of striking workers. And... Um, and while we can talk about, well, that, that is the university trying to break a strike, it is also something that is enlisting faculty in strike breaking. And so that has proved to be fairly controversial and has opened up lines of debate within the university that I think are um, potentially polarizing and, and that are going to last well beyond the strike itself. Students um, have been going to offices of some of the higher-ups, and according to some of the research I've done, there have been some arrests. Are you aware of what that situation is? Can you speak to it all from someone who's there in California? Well, sure. So um, the strike continued for uh, about three weeks And then the university gave an offer that the uh, unions believed were, uh, was inadequate and insufficient. And after that offer and the feeling of being disrespected, not listened to, and, and possibly like that the university was bargaining in bad faith, uh, union leaders across the state have engaged in what they call an escalation of tactics. And so those tactics involve the, the sit-ins and picketing that, that you just described um, and, and arrests for occupying certain offices. Um, I don't know what the UAW plans next, but that has become part of its tactics during the strike. And I will say, if the strike does continue into next term, I expect a very high level of disruption of the university's functions starting the first week of winter quarter or spring semester. That it's hard to imagine uh, this strike continuing as it has. It is likely to become more militant and more confrontational uh, the longer it drags out. The United Auto Workers is the major union that the students are part of and are they the same union as the teamsters and is that why uh, notices have gone out that deliveries do not have to be made to campus no so um, the teamsters are a different union but the teamsters are a union that is uh, fairly famous for um, its solidarity with other workers and so The Teamsters Union, uh, which represents UPS drivers, among others, has declared that it will not deliver 
to the University of California campus. In addition, building trades workers um, in the greater area in kind of California have also declared that they will stop construction work at various, um, like when there's a picket line at a construction site on campus, uh, building trades workers tend to refuse to cross that picket line. Uh, For how long, it kind of depends on uh, the kind of background organizing that UAW has done with other unions. Um, but, but we have seen some union solidarity. Unfortunately, most unions that represent workers at the University of California, however, have the same provisions that our union has in their no strikes clause, which is to say no sympathy strikes. And its leaders don't even have the free speech to say uh, that uh, that its members should engage in sympathy strikes. So that has made it harder for UC-based unions to show the kind of solidarity that Teamsters and building trades workers have shown. Do you think people in other parts of the world are shocked to be hearing about the limits of workers' rights in the United States? I doubt it. Um, and that's because I think most people around the world are familiar with the fact that um, anywhere there's a strike, there's often a police response and that there are um, that the rights of workers, even where they have been obtained are often fairly constrained by their governments. And so in this case, I don't think that the United States is exceptional. Um, I think what is actually been revealed by this strike, as well as a strike that's taking place by uh, non-tenure track faculty at the new school, which is also led by a UAW chapter, is that American higher education, while very highly regarded internationally, um, has an addiction to cheap teaching labor. And I think both people in the United States and outside the United States who might have suspected that elite institutions would invest in teachers and teaching, they're now discovering as part of the debates raised by the graduate student strike at the UCs and the non-tenure track faculty strike at the new school, that the majority of schools' budgets uh, at a variety of levels no longer go to instruction. They go to a whole host of other things and only a minority of the teachers of undergraduates uh, are people with living wage jobs who have professional status. And, um, and that is the system that labor unions in the US, faculty and graduate student are trying to change. And we're trying to make visible as well. I was a adjunct at a UC school uh, and the students were surprised to learn that I was making less than federal minimum wage. Right. Well, and it's, I have to say that it's even worse in the teaching colleges and community colleges uh, in California. So most college students in the United States go to community college. Uh, and those are public two-year institutions usually, though some of them have grant four-year degrees. Uh, above that, Uh, Most college students attend uh, four-year teaching colleges, and most of those are public. And so in California, that's the community colleges and the CSUs, and they have, as you would expect, the most teachers as well. 
Well, if you're teaching in the California community colleges, uh, 70% of those teachers are non-tenure track or what are called non-full-time instructors, and they earn $3,000 per 16-week course, and they're capped at three courses per year, per, per term, per campus, which means they teach six classes a year and they earn $18,000 before taxes and, uh, and various other withholdings. And they may not even be eligible for health benefits. So that's a poverty wage. That's not a living wage. And how do you then make ends meet? Uh, you either have a job outside of higher education or you teach so many students that your low wages basically become an incentive for you to treat students like numbers, to not give them the kind of qualitative assistance and mentorship that they deserve and that they're going into debt for, but instead give them assignments uh, that can be quickly graded or that are almost ungraded, multiple choice tests, things like that. Um, and that is endemic to our higher education system. And it has to change. And I got involved with organized labor and kind of faculty unions because I didn't see any other way to change it. The, the addiction to teaching labor uh, is deep and wide and uh, it has to be made uh, abnormal again. Um, And for that to happen, there has to be a kind of a, a surge of either anger or hope or both that says there there's there must be an alternative to this and i think ultimately that's what uh, the uc strike is doing and it's what a lot of higher education labor unions are doing now uh, the top five nlrb election uh, elections uh, to create new unions in the united states in 2022 uh, are all graduate student unions And so that says something uh, both about a kind of militancy taking place in American universities, but also a sense of feeling that something about the higher education system uh, either no longer works or must change. I I misspoke. It was a CSU, uh, one of my adjunct jobs. Um, And one of the things I noticed among the adjuncts was that we were determined to give the students the quality that they would get from a full-time professor, but it came at the detriment of our health and it comes with a cost of burnout. That's exactly right. Um, the alternative to treating your students like numbers when your workload is very high or your wages are low or both is martyrdom. And And that, on the one hand, can feel rewarding in a short-term way, but it's not sustainable in the long term, except for people who are unusually heroic. Um, It is more likely to lead to the kind of stress, anxiety, burnout, mental health issues that you're describing, because it's hard to sacrifice that much that consistently while still being treated like a second-class subject. Um, It was actually my experience in the CSU system that really radicalized me. I was teaching in the um, history department at Cal State Long Beach, and um, 
the history department had, it, it was like twice as many of its faculty were non-tenure track than tenure track. And we were teaching 60 person classes for students who had, uh, were not sufficiently prepared for college, uh, though some of them were. And um, that was setting those students up to fail. And um, while it was common for a non-tenure track instructor to teach 60 students per class, you might have tenure track faculty making twice as much, three times as much uh, in that same department who taught 60 students per term instead of per class, and sometimes 60 students per year. And to naturalize that level of inequality between faculty, uh, it undermines the whole academic project because it, um, it turns colleagues into either exploited temps or managers of precarious labor. And academic freedom in that environment is undermined. Uh, and, and there's so much focus on trying to get scarce resources from your institution that the, the focus on quality teaching becomes very difficult. I'm not saying it's impossible. And there are heroic teachers doing that work every day. But I do think it is way harder than it should be uh, for our colleges to, to prioritize uh, not just people getting college credit or obtaining degrees, but to prioritize quality education. And I don't think you can do that without living wages and some kind of professional status for the majority of your teachers. In some parts of the world, it it's, would be so strange for them to understand that our jobs here are often the major way that we get health insurance. We can get it through a domestic partner who has a job that has health insurance, or we often get it through our own job, which which makes our job loss have more ramifications. One of the other things that the student strikes have put back on the public radar is the housing issues. Um, the LA Times ran a piece a few years ago about how adjuncts and precarious faculty lived in their car, couch surfed, um, but also there have been pieces lately about um, unhoused students. Um, I'm up at the Santa Barbara area mostly, and students who live in their cars, uh, students who are down in the San Diego area at the UC there who can't find housing. When students are striking for a cost of living uh, increase and for living wages, the high cost of living in California um, I think is one thing that's very hard for people to understand and the housing crisis and how all of this is coming together so dramatically. Yes. Um, I think so. One of the major reasons that graduate students are on strike right now is they have decided to demand a wage increase that is far larger than almost any unions ever demand their initial demand was for more than doubling their wage. Um, and their reasoning for that was primarily based on the fact that the California housing market has seen approximately, I don't know, maybe 400% growth in terms of the price of real estate 
in the last 20 years. And what that means is even though graduate student wages have largely held steady with the cost of inflation, they were based on assumptions about the cost of living that are now, that, that no longer make sense because graduate students disproportionately uh, are renters. They cannot afford to own a home almost ever. And therefore, and many are going into student debt and therefore they're dependent on rental housing markets. Well, if the cost of rental housing goes through the roof, all of a sudden either uh, their wages will be reduced to just paying rent or they will have to go into debt uh, and or they will have to go into debt as part of their degree. Um, and there are some people who have been saying, well, that's just a necessary sacrifice that comes for graduate students. They're not supposed to receive a living wage. They're supposed to receive an apprenticeship wage. And they're supposed to sacrifice because at the end of their apprenticeship, they have been trained for a job that will give them a steady career somewhere in the middle class. But as you point out, the other factor that makes the kind of older labor deal uh, bankrupt and no longer sustainable is that in addition to the high cost of housing, you also have the decline of professional opportunities for many graduate students after they receive their PhD. And therefore, if teaching colleges and community colleges are now predominantly hiring low-wage temps, the debt you've gone into as a graduate student may be unpayable. And the sacrifice you've made of taking yourself out of other more competitive labor markets to obtain a PhD may no longer seem financially sound. And therefore, it raises questions about the fundamental nature of the apprenticeship itself. Is this really an apprenticeship that graduate students are going through? Or are they basically, in the name of apprenticeship, being used as cheap teaching labor, uh, but just by another name? Are they essentially in the same conditions as non-tenure track faculty uh, who teach in the teaching colleges and the community colleges, but a lot of them are hoping that they uh, will get some professional status job. There are jobs that do have living wages and come with professional status in higher education, but there are not nearly as many of them uh, as are needed to uh, provide the majority of people who get PhDs with decent work. And um, that is not because there's no demand for college teachers. It's because the college teaching profession has been deprofessionalized. It's been turned into a gig. And, and that has produced pressures that now the UC grad students are saying, make it untenable to pay substandard wages to grad students. And that's why they say, instead of being paid 23000 a year, Initially, they said they wanted to be paid 54000 a year. They've since dropped that demand down to 43000 a year, but it's still something where they're demanding close to a 100% wage increase in order to not just keep up with inflation, but to produce a new kind of higher education system that is not as premised on exploiting its teachers.
You mentioned earlier that the new school uh, has a strike going on, and they're about 97% part-time faculty, and that is who is striking. There are other strikes going on at the same time, or strikes being considered. And earlier this year, the American University, which is where I uh, did my PhD, had a strike. One thing that's, I think, puzzling to students and parents and uh, grandparents who are all chipping in for tuition is tuition is expensive and it is hard for them to understand that the vast majority of the people working on campus are making an, a, an unlivable wage. The American University strike was very visible. They kept moving it to wherever the strategic targets were on campus. So if they were opening a dorm to let new students in, they moved the strike there. If there was going to be a prominent speaker, they moved the strike there. They made it impossible to um, ignore what was happening. And yet I don't think um, the people who pay the tuition were ever ignoring it. I think it wasn't it wasn't fathomable that when you tour a beautiful campus that has wonderful facilities and there are big names teaching there and it's well regarded, it's not fathomable that about 80% of the people can't afford to keep their job there. Right. I think this is the exciting but difficult thing about these strikes is what's exciting is they give hope to providing some kind of consumer protection, that is to say protection for students, but also sort of um, worker justice at the same time by by shining a light on financial decisions that may not be in the best interest of the majority of people who either attend or work for their schools. How did how did universities come to be institutions where the majority of their spending did not go into teachers or teaching is a complicated question. Uh, some of it is that they've never been, you know, a hundred percent spending on uh, teachers and teaching. There's always some infrastructure to support. Uh, another thing that um, LA Tandy Shermer would remind people of is that uh, the, most public higher education in the United States has never been fully publicly funded. There's always been some kind of private fundraising. There's always been some degree of underfunding, uh, ambivalence about, uh, and even opposition to consistent funding of public higher education. And, um, and so there are a variety of circumstances in both public and private schools where a search for additional revenue for a variety of reasons can result in a, in what Gary Slaughter and Sheila Rhodes have called academic capitalism. Um, and that is where, um, I'm sorry, I, Gary Rhodes and Leslie Slaughter, I don't know if I said that properly, um, but by academic capitalism, they mean taking the revenue that you get and investing it in ventures that are intended to make more money. So in one case might be, well, we want to provide students with dorms. But if your goal of providing students with dorms is to earn money, then the prices that you set for the residence halls 
may go above and beyond covering your immediate costs and maybe about generating revenue that you redirect to other things. Now, technically, those things may supposed to be teachers and teaching, but some of it may go to administration for developing these new money-making ventures. In addition, by floating bonds or depending on other sources of loans to make this money, you may go into debt and a significant part of your budget may start to be um, absorbed by interest payments to Wall Street. And so a number of faculty unions in the past couple of years, starting at Salem State University in Massachusetts, have been trying to highlight how um, school debt as a way of trying to increase revenue, uh, offset uh, fluctuations in enrollment, or even offset declines in government support for higher education can gobble up big parts of your um, budget, uh, can saddle your institution with rules about how high their reserves have to be that are set by Wall Street bankers instead of by administrators, um, and can ultimately be especially destructive if your school engages in a risky investment. And so at the new school, uh, Sanjay Reddy, the economist, an economist there has highlighted how uh, like a risky real estate venture has um, kind of undermined the liquidity of the new school and made it more difficult for it to pay its teachers a living wage. Well, who was in the room when it made that risky investment? Because the assumption of who would bear the risk was, well, we'll just potentially increase tuition or we'll reduce wages for workers. Uh, that kind of that kind of system depended on basically keeping workers and students out of the room. So the democratic promise of union activism is ultimately about trying to produce financial transparency and trying to provide some kind of democratic check on exploitative and risky financial behavior. I think ultimately, though, at public schools, it also requires lobbying state legislatures and making a case to the public to go back to taxing models that were far more progressive in which the wealthy paid a much more significant share of their income in taxes in order to support these institutions. What do you hope this episode sparks for listeners? You know, I, I guess twofold. One, uh, a sense of how um, higher education is a stratified system, uh, just like K-12 systems are, in that um, those schools with the most resources uh, can provide different kinds of educational opportunities. And if you want a sort of equitable society, you need to broaden that expenditure of resources to as many people as possible. And then if our current system is inequitable, uh, where at the lower levels it can be exploitative, and at the lowest level, say at some for-profit colleges, it can be actually predatory, where students go into debt for degrees they can't finish, and the majority of the debt that they hand over to their school 
doesn't go to instruction, but goes straight to shareholders uh, or um, hedge fund managers. Uh, so there's a level of predation at the lowest level um, in this un- inequitable system and that resistance is possible and that hope is necessary that instead of capitulating to this unequal distribution of resources in which only families uh, that have extraordinary wealth or family ties or alumni ties to certain institutions get access to the best possible education we can provide, that actually labor unions can, can be a vehicle and student unions as well for trying to broaden access to these resources and to focus schools on their educational missions and um, and ultimately develop a more democratic political economy if we can get a progressive tax structure out of this kind of resistance. So on the one hand, um, there's I think these strikes are about pushing for living wages, but on the other, it's pushing for an economy that can support the demand for living wages and pushing for an economy that can provide better jobs for college graduates and graduates of um, doctoral programs of all kinds. Is that what gives you hope to continue with this work? It does, <laughs> but I have to say it's really hard. Uh, you know, this stuff, people don't do it for you. You have to, you have to make a sacrifice in your own life away from your own potential earnings and away from, say, professional activities that you might have otherwise focused on to say, this matters enough that I'm willing to make a sacrifice to create this better system. And it's a risk. It is, you don't know that you'll be able to do it. It really is an act of testimony where you say, um, if I don't do it, um, then I'm really capitulating to a system that is going to grind me down. And... Um, And I think that's hardest for people who have tenure or who have fairly good jobs because uh, they have the support to do, to live the kind of life that they would like more or less, you know, their conditions may not be perfect. And it may feel like a act of solidarity to say, I don't want to be the last person in my department to teach X. I want to fight to make sure that my department can continue to offer the educational opportunities it wants, or my school can. Because if we, if we don't make these sacrifices, what we're seeing in American higher education is um, sort of just a, a, a very significant divestment in which we should, there's very little hope that things as they continue will maintain professional standards for most college teachers and teaching. And, um, and most people I think know that, but I think the sacrifice required to change it sometimes feels daunting. Um, and, and it partly is, uh, but there is something that can be at least in certain moments, uh, energizing about saying, we need to do something about this and I want to be part of that solution. You spoke earlier about the students on the strike line and that if the strike isn't resolved soon, uh, you foresee that the strike that 
is shown in the news and that is happening in real time after the winter break will be more extreme. There, there will be it will be more militant. Would it be fair to say that the people who get to the point of striking, it's they cannot stay in how it is, and they know they could lose everything, but they can't. They can't do it the way that it is anymore. It, when you reach that point where you know you could lose it all if the strike doesn't go your way, is it is what empowers you to keep going that you know you've lost it either way? If you don't get the resolution that you need, it's it's pretty much over for you anyway. Well, I think this is this is one of the challenges that comes from observing, or, or that that I think observers of strikes should be aware of, which is. Um, most the strike it happens a lot less in America than it used to, and most of the time that we see strikes, it is usually to protect against cuts. It's because an employer is threatening to reduce wages, take away benefits, uh, you know, um, create a multi-tier system, something like that. Uh, in the case of the Chicago teachers. Uh, a decade ago, it was school closures. In the case of public school teachers in red states a few years ago, it was, um, I believe it was initially about limiting access to health benefits, and then teachers just lost it and said, we can't take it anymore, we need higher wages. The UC strike is different uh, because it's actually saying, um, we're not we're not fighting cuts, we are seeking a new kind of system. Um, and one of the really difficult questions that I think people in those unions are facing right now is how much change are they willing to settle for in the short term? Do they, do they need that radical restructuring immediately? Or if they get part of what they demand, can they say, this is good enough? Um, that is an open question, and some of those debates are happening in public. And it's really up to those workers to decide um, how much improvement they can settle for and how much really feels like it's just an attempt to placate them, to, to forestall and ultimately undermine the demands for more radical change that the union started with. Um, and then part of the factors that go into that are, are partly how long can our members keep striking, keep going without pay? Technically, the UAW has a fairly substantial strike fund, so they're able to offset some of these losses by providing people with pay for showing up to the picket line. Uh, but how long can people hold out is one question that I hear you raising. Another question, though, is what builds a union's power? Because if you accept a contract and it divides your workforce because it's only narrowly accepted, it may, it may weaken your union, even if it gets people some good things, because you need your union strong in order to enforce the new contract you have and in order to bargain new contracts. But, um, but that's also going to be an open debate of what kinds of settlements can make us feel good about we did, what we did can make us feel like our sacrifice was worth it and um, and we work well together and we are excited for the next stage. And what kinds of settlements can feel like we gave up so much that I feel like I was used. These are personal decisions on, on behalf of people who are on strike as well as people who 
are choosing to not strike, even though they're represented by these unions, these are the debates they're having. And because so much seems to be at stake, um, some of that some of those debates, because people are invariably going to have different opinions on the subject, can get very personal. And so even if by the time your listeners hear this, the strike is resolved, it's hard to imagine that there won't be ongoing contention and debate about how it was resolved or how the, the strike was called off, etc. Um, and if it continues, that will also be controversial in a way. Um, with people debating how long should it continue for, uh, what's our ultimate goal, um, etc. Trevor Griffey, thank you so much for being here today and giving us insights into this historic UC strike. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and this is the Academic Life on New Books Network. I hope you will please join us again. <laughs>